Man, Jay, Mondo is so cool. I can't wait till he joins Generation X. Hate to break this to you, Miles, but that is not going to happen. I distinctly remember him hanging out with the team. Oh, oh, that wasn't Mondo. That was a clone of Mondo that Black Tom Cassidy sent to infiltrate Generation X. Black Tom Cassidy? Oh yeah, that's Banshee's evil cousin with the shillelagh who can control wood. Right, Juggernaut's life partner. How did Black Tom Cassidy get a hold of a clone of Mondo? The old-fashioned way. He made one. I never thought of Tom as much of a science guy. He made it out of plants. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 293 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and its dark alternate universe counterpart, The Age of Apocalypse. And, I don't know, part of me wonders whether we put these in the right or the wrong order. Because on the upside, we have two of our favorite series, one after the other, Factor X and Generation Next. But on the downside, like, the other series aren't quite as good, and so maybe we should have spaced them out more. I don't know. I mean, we are going to have, like, Angry Nightcrawler with a beard next time. That's good. It's true, it's true. And honestly, I don't think there are any total duds in the Age of Apocalypse. Like, I have my favorites, but I think they're all enjoyable series. Agreed, especially given the context. And I, I mean, I think we're comparing them more directly than we would otherwise just because we're looking at them in such quick succession. It's true, yeah. Uh, but yes, we are indeed talking about Generation Next today. And this is a weird one because, as you may recall, number one, Generation Next is a title that was already used just a few months before in the Phalanx Covenant. It was the Phalanx Covenant story about the formation of Generation X, kind of. And the second weird thing is that the aforementioned Generation X had had all of four goddamn issues before the world ended and it was replaced with an alternate universe version. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine writing a book and after only four issues to set up the status quo, having to do an alternate universe version of it? I mean, I know Scott Lobdell knew what was happening because he was one of the main architects of the Age of Apocalypse, but damn. That actually sounds awesome to me. (laughs) It is a testament, I think, to the skills of the creative team that it managed to work and to work so, so well. Oh, absolutely agreed. So I've mentioned before on the show that this is one of the first X things that I read The Age of Apocalypse is. And of all of it, this is the series that stuck with me the hardest. This is the one from which I remembered moments. This is the one whose look really, really left a pretty strong imprint. And yeah, this is the one that that I woke up sort of vaguely shuddering about. Oh yeah, it is wonderful. So I promise this is going to be relevant, listeners. A lot of people have had a lot of opinions about the fact that the New Mutants movie, if it ever actually comes out, is going to be a horror movie. Like that was evident from the very first trailer. And I think we've both always been defenders of, of that decision, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that in general, we're both pretty consistently on record talking about liking it when the movies, and especially the X movies, go outside of the superhero template and really experiment with genre and with setting and form. And I think the New Mutants movie is a great way to do horror because 
it's been consistent in the X universe, at least, and I think to an extent in the Marvel universe as a whole, I mean, Power Pack, it's dark, that the books about kids are the ones that are in some ways the scariest and in some ways the darkest. Oh yeah, the kids are not all right, and Age of Apocalypse very, very much continues that pattern in Generation Next. It is so dark, so nightmarishly, soul-crushingly dark, and I love it. There was one detail, one soul-crushing detail that I I remembered having been in here that I I think is actually in X-Men Omega. But other than that, yeah, it's every bit as, as full of despair and weird nightmares as I remembered. And that's not the only way in which Generation Next is unique in the Age of Apocalypse lineup. What's also interesting is its scope and its pace, because a lot of the other books take place over quite a long period of time. Like, yeah, this is all happening right at the climax of the entire universe as everything comes to a head in X-Men Omega, but Generation Next, for the most part, has an introductory issue number one, and then number two, three, and four take place over the course of, like, a couple hours, I think. Generation Next also feels to me like a complete series in ways that very few of the others do. I mean, I think Factor X more than most, but Generation Next still more than that, because a lot of them end with sort of a big, okay, we're going to go take on the big bad now. Generation Next, while it doesn't have a resolution, has more of what feels like an ending. Oh, it really, really does. Like, I was thinking of if I wanted to just give somebody an end to the Age of Apocalypse, or, I mean, hell, to X-Men alternate universes in general, what I would show them. And for that reason, I think this miniseries would probably be it. It feels complete in a perfect, devastating way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Another thing I love about this series is how much the artist, Chris Pacello, is clearly having the time of his goddamn life. And it shows. This is maybe my favorite Chris Pacello art ever? I don't know. The stuff that he did with textures and textiles in his art in the mid to late 90s was so cool and he's he's it's it's his art has evolved in other ways in other directions but there was a period when he was really into like checkers and into sort of adding weird sort of op art almost at emberly looking details that i absolutely love and that this is at the dead center of Oh, it absolutely is. And uh, from Tom DeFalco's comics creators on X-Men, there's an interview with Chris Bocello, and it's interesting to hear kind of what his experience of doing this miniseries so soon into starting Generation X was. Bob Harris was really cool because I had ideas for Generation X that he didn't want to use, and he said I could use them in Generation Next. I was sold. The uniforms in Generation Next were the colors that I wanted them to be, and the characters were closer to how I had originally envisioned them. I wanted to be really aggressive with it as well. Worked out well. That it very much did. But before we dive into this stylish, if nightmarishly depressing dystopia, maybe we should talk a little bit about what came first. Right, so this is the Age of Apocalypse. Magneto, the leader of the X-Men in the dystopian alternate universe of the Age of Apocalypse, which began when Legion, Professor X's son, traveled back in time attempting to kill Magneto and killed Professor X instead, has received some disturbing news from the angry stranger and perpetually universe-displaced Bishop. 
Bishop told Magneto that this universe, that being the Age of Apocalypse, only exists because of a time paradox caused by the thing you just talked about, Jay. Therefore, history diverged at that point into utter terribleness, and it's all wrong, and it's Magneto's fault, and somebody's got to fix it. It's really not Magneto's fault, and I feel kind of bad that Bishop keeps insisting it is and Magneto believes him. I know, Magneto's life is hard enough. Like, give the guy a break. It's Legion's fault. Yes, it is 100% Legion's fault. Speaking of, I've almost finished that TV series, and goddamn, season three. But anyway, Magneto disobeyed standard role-playing advice and split the party to respond to this revelation. He sent his assorted X-Men on various missions to verify and or fix this whole the universe is wrong thing. But it's not only the X-Men proper who have been tasked with finding the pieces to fix this world. Let's meet our next heroes, Generation Next. Their lives are really, really bad. And we'll learn a bit about those lives in Generation Next, number one, from the top. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Chris Pachalo, inked by Mark Buckingham, colored by Steve Buccolato and Electric Crayon, and I think we've got the same creative credits for every issue. We do, and honestly, I think that's part of why this series feels so cohesive and complete. God, I love miniseries. Me too, for the most part. Speaking of things that all go together, all of the covers of this series also connect into one big illustration. I didn't know that until I happened to be organizing all of my comics on my bedroom floor one day, because that's that's what I did for fun when I was a kid. I did the same thing with action figures, and realized that they were one big picture, and... It was one of my happiest childhood moments, right next to watching the initial opening credits of Final Fantasy VI, which is to say Final Fantasy III. Aw. Now, the series opens with a familiar scene. It's the students training by fighting against each other in the danger room or something like it. But this is a little different. Not only is the scenario different in ways that we're going to loop back to, but even the characters we recognize aren't quite the versions of them we recognize. Who's there? So we have Chamber, you know, everybody's favorite emo goth kid with a big explosion where his upper chest and chin used to be. Except in this case, he does have a face and a neck. And where his powers blew his self up in the main universe, instead he's got this sort of robotic mechanical aperture thing. He can still shoot lasers out of his chest, but without, you know, blowing himself up. It vaguely evokes Havoc's containment suit in X-Men First Class. Uh, It does, yeah. And I have to wonder, why did Chamber turn out so much better in this universe? Do you think it's just because Magneto or Colossus and Shadowcat or whoever found him earlier? I don't. Here's what I think. Chamber, all of these kids, grew up in a universe where mutants were a normalized, known, accepted, and in fact lionized phenomenon. The rise of Apocalypse came much, much earlier. I mean, Apocalypse was coming into power, was already actively taking over North America when the Summers kids were kids, which means that this generation grew up in a world with Apocalypse in power, you know, looking for mutations. Chambers specifically mentions his dad having discussed his mutation with him when he was little, when he was growing up. So I assumed that he was he was just he was raised in a context where he was prepared for it, where he was around people who were prepared for it, and where there were interventions accessible and in place, which raises up a whole other set of questions. 
But I like that. I like the idea that these are kids who, in a way, grew up with more privilege than they would have in Earth-616. In other ways, much less. But that means that their decision to work with the X-Men to join this band of revolutionaries rather than just taking the easy way out, that makes it mean a lot. One of the things that intrigues me about Apocalypse's notion of survival of the fittest is that it very much allows for transhumanism in ways that involve things like adaptive technology. That's a good point, yeah. I mean, it also helps that he transformed himself from a pharaoh warrior-looking guy into a giant blue fish cyborg, so, you know, he'd be a little hypocritical if he wasn't into augmentation. Yeah, but for instance, Holocaust survives by virtue of a containment suit. Right. And... You would think that that would that would you know if you were you were going with with pure survival of the fittest ideology, that would simply mean that he wasn't fit to survive. But again, the presence of it's 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 not just evolution by means of technology; it's survival by means of technology that's allowed for. And it's 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 I'm I'm not defending apocalypse here. It's just an interesting aspect of his his larger um, dogma. Well, especially if you uh, look at one portion of the story in the Powers of Ten miniseries about how Apocalypse and his folks have interacted with transhumanist machine folks in, well, that would be getting too much into it. But it makes you think. A little bit. Now, Chamber isn't the only one of this group who are a little bit different. The next member of the team we meet is Paige Guthrie Husk, and the first difference with her is is as with chamber cosmetic this this husk is brunette she is yeah and her personality at least on the surface appears very different as well the page guthrie we know in generation x in the main universe is very driven like she's got a sense of humor certainly but she's very much the overachieving leader figure and this one is sort of a mischievous flirt in ways that i could never see the 616 page acting what we knew about this page going into the series is that when Apocalypse attacked her family's farm, her older brother, Sam, and one of her younger sisters chose to go with him, and Paige didn't. Paige refused and fled. Yeah, so we have this whole, you know, sibling against sibling thing going on, which I think is really powerful. I kind of wish that was more directly addressed in Generation Next, but given how it's addressed way later in the Age of Apocalypse ongoing, maybe it's for the best that it's not. See, I actually kind of dig it, because this isn't sibling against sibling. This is just radical divergence. This is this is not Paige being defined by trying to stop Sam. This is Paige just going in a really different direction. Good point, yeah. So, the next team member we, we meet is one who we saw very briefly in sort of an aside in an early issue of, of Generation X, and that's Mondo. And I love the way Mondo is introduced as Husk and Chamber are brawling and flirting. Uh, yeah, what we the first thing we learned about Mondo is that Mondo is sick of risking Mondo's life while those two suck face. Yeah, and this is interesting because this is our first real look at Mondo as a character other than a single page of him relaxing on a beach in Gen X. And this version of him, he talks about himself in the third person, he's got his own blocky font, and he's a very good, if very emotional dude. And I love this Mondo. Same, so much. And... We've got two new members on the team. Those are Vincente Chimetta, a metamorph, and Know-It-All, whose name is Claudia, 
who looks a bit like Monet, but clearly isn't, and is, is one of those sort of long, complicated sets of intentions that didn't quite pan out. Right. So, Claudia's name apparently is a reference to Claude Monet, because she is the Age of Apocalypse version of Monet Saint Croix, sort of. Or at least the one who's not the twins who work with Amplate. Well, that story didn't come out for years later, so I don't think we have to worry about it right here. But yeah, Lobdell supposedly intended Know-It-All to be a clue to Monet not existing in the main Marvel Universe because Know-It-All was so different. I guess the implication here is that Claudette and Nicole, the young St. Croix siblings who merged to form the Monet identity, in this universe instead merged to form the Know-It-All, Claudia, identity. So... We mentioned that this is the worst training exercise ever, and what these kids are supposed to be doing here is literally killing each other. This is how they're supposed to learn, and they've been set to this task by their teachers, who are characters who are not part of the Generation X series at all. These are these are not the two I would think of as either likely mentors for this group of people or as mentors who would push their kids in this direction, which is part of what makes their counterparts so interesting. First among them is Colossus. And the narration sets him up really beautifully. Legend has it, years ago, him and his brother were Russia's greatest heroes. Back when there was a Russia. Before his brother became an Horsemen of his lord and majesty bow your head down now or die, Apocalypse. He made his way to America after the horrors started, and offered his services to Magneto. Mind you, though he seems content to keep us trainees at a constant boil, it's pretty obvious to everyone involved, this is not a happy person. And Colossus's look totally fucking sells that. He's got this asymmetrical outfit of just red armor. He's got this mask over his eyes that covers a lot of his face. His muscles are impossibly bulging, like they barely look human. This is a really intimidating, angry, cold-looking guy. Like, we saw Colossus lose so much in the main Marvel Universe and just get colder and colder and stop transforming into his human form— and yeah, we never see this guy in flesh even once in this whole miniseries, and he is just dead inside. Do you know what would 100% turn this look around, though? A nice little kitten in the corner? A beard. Yeah. Oh, he looks so good with a beard. Like, the extraordinary X-Men era, it was flawed in many, many ways, but that was not one of them. Both Colossus and Nightcrawler had great beards. True that. Well, and, and there was the future Colossus with a great beard and stuff. And anyway... Colossus looks great with a beard, is my point, but like a beard and that mask would have totally worked. Now, with him, his fellow team leader and wife, Shadowcat. She would only be a beard if this was Ultimate Colossus we were talking about. Wah-wah. Anyway, uh, she has mechanical Wolverine-style claws for extra scariness, and while Peter is grim, she's just flat-out mean. She is. I mean, we've talked before about how Kitty has a mean streak that comes out sometimes, and that's like most of her personality here. And one little detail I love is that this Kitty smokes frequently. And very recently in Warren Ellis's Excalibur run in the main universe, when Kitty turned evil because of the Soul Sword briefly, like her smoking was the first sign that something was wrong. It's a nice little callback, whether it was deliberate or not. What it looked like to me and sort of what it evoked along with the claws was a kitty who had, you know, if you consider Kitty's relationship to Wolverine, what does that look like under Weapon X? 
Yeah, because at least early on, the version of Logan we see in the Age of Apocalypse is a hell of a lot darker. He doesn't sort of get, quote, civilized until it would seem later in the timeline. Yeah, and I would I would take this as a kitty who wasn't so much mentored by him as just kind of went, that guy, no one fucks with him, I'm gonna do that. Yeah, but it is rough, and it's rough to see this issue as Colossus and Shadowcat are not only encouraging these kids to kill each other, but, like, actively trying to kill the kids themselves. And that was always weird to me, because how can you possibly have a functional group of trainee X-Men if, you know, half of them are murdered every single day? You'd run out of X-Men very quickly. Yeah, that's a really bad training exercise. And I sort of assume that it's not actually going to happen, that this is to some extent motions they go through, but we never find out for certain because Magneto interrupts with Bishop stuff. Specifically, he needs Generation Next to help him find someone who can travel back in time, hopefully, because if they're going to set things right, that's going to be necessary. Now, this is easier said than done because Apocalypse has gone out of his way to have all of the chronal variant mutants killed. Which is actually really smart. If he has any inclination that history could be undone, of course he'd want to prevent that. However, there are still a few around with additional potential. Now, most of them are one-offs or unnamed, and there are only a few exceptions, only a few recognizable folks. One of those is Gardner Monroe. This is flashback. He's dead in the Age of Apocalypse, but in the 616, he was a member of Beta Flight, who basically went the way of Legion, not that Legion, but the Legion of the Special Executive, which, if you recall, are the future versions of TechNet. Both of them could bring future versions of themselves to the present, and one of those future versions eventually got killed, which creates a fundamental endpoint for the character. That is one of my favorite examples of time travel nonsense in all of comics. I love the vicious logic to it. I love that they did it twice. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And the other recognizable name is one that you'll recognize if you've been following the podcast for any period of time, and that is Ileana Rasputin, who is in the Portland core and probably going to be impossible to rescue. And that's why Magneto went to Generation Next, because Ileana's Colossus's little sister, who Colossus thought was dead. And if we know anything about Colossus, it's that in any universe, he will do dumb things for family. He surely will. That brings us to Generation Next number two. Hither comes the Sugar Man. Oh god. Sugar Man is... Uh, anyway... But a character that's even more striking visually than the Sugar Man is the one on the cover. This is a dude we're going to learn about named Quietus, and the cover has him firing a gun point blank into Husk's shredding apart face. And Quietus' design is actually great. He's this hulking, purple gigas of a man with this long curly hair that covers most of his face, and you just see his angular nose and his scowling mouth underneath, and he's wearing this orange and purple striped suit, which contrasts his gaudiness with his intimidation. And that's something that Bocello does really, really well. Like, everything is just this glorious, excessive fashion disaster, and that can make things more whimsical, it can make things more intimidating. Like, it's a weapon that can be pointed in any direction. Something I go back and forth on is whether visually Quietus is Jewish-coded. Huh. I mean, there's the curly hair and there's the larger nose, so... In the shape of his face and a number of the character specifics and the way he, the ways he works within this, the established order. 
I've honestly never thought about that. Like, I don't think it's something anyone set out deliberately to do, but it's interesting to pick apart and look at. Well, and we know Bocello does do caricatures sometimes that are at least partially race-based. I mean, we've seen that in his uh, design for Gateway in the main Gen X series. Yeah, I yeah. so I, I wonder about this. But in general, the mutants we're going to see in this series, at least the ones who we're going to see working on Apocalypse's side, and to an extent all of them, because again, th- that exaggeration is, is so much part of Bocello's style— are going to be ones who have really sort of gnarly, exaggerated features. Something else I wonder, thinking about it, and thinking about more of the designs in the core, is how much of how I'm reading them has to do with the fact that they remind me of Maurice Sendak illustrations, and I know the origin point of those, which were his his older relatives. Honestly, I don't really have a conclusion that I'm pulling out of this, or a strong argument. I'm just kind of musing and exploring in different directions. But we'll get to Quietus later. For now, I want to talk about the way this issue opens, which is a young, sort of tween-aged Ilyana Rasputin talking to a new girl in the Seattle core, which is the source of all U.S. energy. And yes, we said Portland core last issue. They changed it to Seattle for some reason. As a Portland resident, I don't know whether to be offended or relieved. Ilyana talks to her new friend. You're new here, Ace, so you don't know the rules. No fires till he's gone. No food, you might smell it on your breath. Nothing that'll draw attention to yourself. Who is he? He's the sugar man. Shut up if you want to live. At which point we see this shadowy monster giggling and skittering through the streets and choosing a different child for whatever. The sugar man is a child's nightmare come to life in charge of the hellscape that is the Seattle core. God, he's so creepy. I really like the way Bocello draws Ileana, though, because she's a mix of both of her 616 versions, both the Dark Child, New Mutants, teenager version of Ileana, and the over-the-top innocent little girl who we saw after Ileana age regressed. This is actually a really believable Ileana, and I think being able to have both of those designs in her gives uh, gives her a lot of sympathetic qualities and a lot for longtime readers to grab onto to care about her. Yeah, this is an Ileana who never got sucked into Limbo, whose powers, you know, will presumably activate when she ages naturally into them, and she just hasn't gotten that old yet. Another design I love is the core itself. It is this visually fascinating hellscape. It's like a filthy steampunk version of the Mines of Moria from Fellowship of the Ring. It's all rickety bridges and gaping rocky caverns and lava and rusted pipes and conduits with a little bit of M.C. Escher geometry thrown in to just make it that much more overwhelmingly surreal. It's very Temple of Doom. Uh, It is, and it's great. Outside the core, though, a graffiti-covered double-decker minibus picks up a couple of human guards uh, to go out of the core to get a night out on the town as those guards are talking about how many humans they killed today. And they have an interesting discussion here. Enrique, you ever feel guilty? About what? Just that, well, we're human too, like the ones down in the core. You know, there but for the grace of God... There ain't no god, Matt. Apocalypse proved that years ago. Besides, we're not like them. At all. We're free. 
For now, anyway, or at least until Chamber kills them both so that he and Skin, who's driving the bus, can steal their uniforms. This is something that the series comes back to a couple times, the idea of the humans who are working for Apocalypse to just work all these other humans to torture and death, sometimes having second thoughts, sometimes just being relieved it's not them. I really appreciate that we get a little bit of insight into the bad guys. I mean, they're still very much bad guys. They still totally suck, but that makes it a little darker, I think, just having them not be evil, faceless, caricature stormtrooper types. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I one of the things that this series really drives home is both human complicity and the tenuousness of the divide between lower caste mutants and humans. Absolutely, yeah. Speaking of higher caste mutants, though, that quietest guy? So he's the director of mutant resources, like, you know, human resources, I kind of love that. Uh, and a scantily clad husk, Paige Guthrie, is bathing him. And he decides, obviously a dude used to nobody ever saying no to him, that he's going to wine and dine her, and then presumably have sex with her. And she plays along. Now, again, these characters are teenagers. This book, even though it's the kid's book, does not shy away from dark, unfortunate shit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It is not the kid's book. It is the ki- the book with a cast of kids. Uh, yes, yes, children probably shouldn't read this. I mean, I did, and I loved it, so maybe kids should? I don't know. I mean, parents, you know your kids and their limits and things. I, I think that this is this is one of those series I would probably not give to, like, six-year-old. Yeah, this was 1995, so I would have been, I don't know, about 13, so that's probably right. Yeah, that's, that's. I mean, I I, I feel like it's it's within the bounds of sort of the general dark and gory YA over it. Like, it's, it's not particularly outrageous for that. Agreed, yeah. Anyway, Quietus quickly realizes that Paige is actually a mutant, thanks to a weird makes-all-mutants-except-Quietus-sick vaporizer thing he has in his room. Don't worry about it, just go with it. And he smacks her across the head. He says he wonders if she's a plant put in there by one of the other horsemen to make this place look bad. Like, I like the little bit of reference to the various inter-apocalypse empire intrigue. And he decides, to add insult to injury, that he's going to drink the bottle of booze that Paige brought along, and she begs him not to, because she says it's her mother's? At which point, Scott Lobdell got a Scott Lobdell, because Quietus says, Your mother smelt of elderberries. So, there are a number of options here. Obviously, this is a Monty Python reference, but I just assumed that the flask smelled like gin. That's what the insult means, is, you know, your mother drinks gin a lot. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's a very specific pop culture reference that is such a Scott Lobdell thing. Like, I'm reminded of his old Excalibur fill-in issues that were just chock full of them. Yeah, it falls flat, and it's it's a weird tonal break there. It is, yeah. But uh, thankfully, things get nice and dark again immediately because it turns out that Flask was Vincente himself, who can turn into a fluid, and so he bursts out of Quietus, and Quietus explodes, and there are ribs and blood and gore everywhere. It's like that time Madrox did that to a villain. Or that other time Madrox did that to a villain. It's pretty gross. One detail I love is there's this close-up of Paige, like, grinning wickedly. It's just a close-up of her mouth when she realizes what's going to happen. These are kids who 
all have little bits of mean streaks to a degree. And honestly, Paige has one of the bigger ones. Well, and these are kids who are entirely at home with the idea of killing. Like, there are a lot of questions raised in this mission, but whether that's okay or whether that's a line they'll cross is not one of them. They're way past that. So, as part of their infiltration of the Seattle Corps, they decide to mimic Quietus. But they have to do it together because Paige shapeshifts to create Quietus's giant purple head, but she doesn't have enough mass left for a body, so Vincente fills Quietus's now empty suit with his own gaseous mass to make it work. I, I think the word that they were looking for every time they said mass in that context was volume, and it really bugged me. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. And that brings us to Generation Next, number three. It only hurts when I sing, where stuff starts to get real dark. Now, the Portland and or Seattle Corps is, as I mentioned, where we first see our first really weird monstrous mutants. And dang, are they weird. They kind of remind me of the troll arc of Excalibur. They're that kind of gnarly. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is that a lot of the guards are the same specific type of monster. They're all these ogres that have two faces coming out of different parts of their heads. Also, I definitely meant X-Factor and not Excalibur a moment ago. No, the trolls showed up in Excalibur years later, so you were right. Yeah, but the art style specifically made me think of their first appearances in X-Factor. Mm, dat art Adams. Good shit. Exactly. So Skin and Chamber, disguised as employees, are sneaking into the core, and their first challenge isn't opposition, but staying quiet in the face of mutant guards casually murdering human prisoners. And it's actually Skin, who we've seen being a hothead all the time, who's the one who has to hold Chamber back, as Skin says. Who said anything about getting away with anything? But when we take a stand, it's gonna be one we can win, amigo. Mondo, however, who's in a different part of the core, does decide to exact some revenge, albeit subtly. He uses his ability to merge with rock and stone and stuff to unmoor the platform one of the guards is standing on over a giant chasm. And their exchange, I think, really highlights the weird dark humor that both Generation X and Generation Next really excel at. And also Mondo's sort of -of matter-of-fact approach to that humor. As the guard falls, he thinks that he's falling naturally and tries to catch himself, saying, Think I can pull myself up. Think I can. Psst. You can't. Can't? Nope. And the guard falls to his death. Good job, Mondo. The dark humor here, it's so playful in some ways. Like, there's a little bit of... uh, banter it's sort of like when wily e. coyote runs off a cliff and takes a second before he realizes that he's going to fall and so he's just standing in air and then looks down and panics there are so many exchanges where villains do that and then the heroes kill them at the same time though this is so much of a character moment for, for mondo and the first of a series of them we're gonna see because he's really the one of the gen next kids who's kind of on his own in here and who's really being forced to kind of interact with this on his own but who can also move through it with the level of both subtlety and his and power that his teammates can't match that's really true yeah so in quietus's office husk and vincente are starting to relax as they go through his files when suddenly the sugar man unexpectedly shows up the boss of this entire place this is where we're going to get our first 
close-up glimpse of the Sugar Man or, and vague sense of what he looks like. Although really, you don't really leave this series with a clear sense of, of how his body works, of how it's structured. He's, he's kind of a giant face and he's threatening, but not to the scale implied by his intro, which somehow makes him even scarier. I know what you mean, yeah. Like, he's sort of a big, goofy-looking dude, but when he's out in the open, there's not that same nightmarish quality. And I like that, because when you have a nightmare, the nightmare is scariest when you can't fully see it. And the children mostly never do fully see the Sugar Man. He's silly. Like, there are aspects of his appearance that are ridiculous. Like, he has a lot of biker affectations. And that absurdity knowing what we already know about him, reads less as funny or charming than as extra ghoulish. Exactly. I think ghoulish is a really good word for the Sugar Man, because you get the impression he knows how he comes off, and he uses it. He uses that goofiness to make himself even more subtly menacing. Pachalo and Buckingham here are also so good with texture, and he's so bristly and weird and gross. Like... You can imagine what the texture of him is like, and it's really unsettling. Oh, yeah. Like, you'd get tetanus if you even looked at that guy. I sort of imagine that the bristles are sharp and possibly urticating. Urticating? What does urticating mean? Well, like, like tarantula hairs. Oh. Yeah, that seems right. Snap off, cause irritation, etc. Yeah. Yep. So, they manage... Page, Page, and uh, Vincente manage, despite the fact that they've they've already doffed most of their disguise, to trick him by being in the shower with with Page kind of perched on Vincente's shoulders and a whole bunch of bubbles surrounding them, and it's weird and kind of charming and sort of slapstick, but the stakes feel really high and it feels legitimately scary. I mean, that's the thing about this. You mentioned sort of the the Looney Tunes feel of it is that it's got that, and at the same time. Everything feels high stakes and dire and terrifying. It feels nightmarish in that regard. Yeah, exactly. That mix of silly and consequential is is horrifying. Like, it's everything that made Pennywise scary in It, or any kind of a monster based off something that's supposed to be cute or comforting or fun. Except the entire world works that way in Generation Next. Yeah, and this group of characters are overwhelmingly shapeshifters, which means they can function with a kind of cartoon logic that isn't necessarily accessible to other characters. Exactly. That brings us back to Ilyana and her friend Ace, and also their much older friend May, who I assume is, is Aunt May from Spider-Man just based on the name. And the appearance, although there is a May Parker gravestone in the X-Universe miniseries, but I don't know. I mean, writers can't talk to each other about everything, I guess. Maybe this one's a clone. Maybe maybe in the Age of Apocalypse, the clone saga happened to Aunt May. I love everything about this plan. Especially because then she could wear that legitimately awesome hoodie-based costume that the clone had. Or was it the original? One of them had it. Now, Ace gets pushed off a wall by one of the overseers, but it's okay because the wall is kind of Mondo, and he's such a good dude. And I gotta say, this is one of those series where knowing what's gonna happen in the fourth issue makes the first three so much more profoundly brutal. I know, right? And they're just laying it on so thick about how great Mondo is. Because Ace is like, oh, I was actually helped by a mutant. I thought all mutants were bad. And he says, but Mondo is good. And then like, she's like, you gotta take me with you. And he realizes he can't. And she keeps begging him. And so he just says, Mondo promises. 
Oh, Mondo, you were the best doomed teenager. Now, while Mondo is having that particular crisis, Husk, Chamber, Vincente, and Skin are cornered by Sugar Man, um, who is gradually baiting Paige and Vincente, still disguised as Quietus, by ordering them to kill the intruders. Now, Claudia keys the teachers who are waiting for a signal to come in that the kids are in trouble, but also that Mondo has located Ileana, and Piotr decides, nope, they're just going to go straight to her. The kids knew what they were getting into when they agreed to this. Oof, and oh man, the situation they're in. Like, this is where we start really seeing just how terrifying Sugar Man is, and a lot of that is his dialogue. There's this thing in his dialogue where especially the first word of any given speech bubble or the first two words are crammed together into one, and he's got these jagged borders to his speech bubbles. I don't know, I always assumed he had this sort of, like, hoarse whisper that changed from very fast to very slow, like, staccato arrhythmically. This is one of those sort of specialized visual speech patterns that I assumed just sort of wasn't replicable by, you know, humans, by speech. Like, there's something, in general about Sugar Man, actually, there's something just sort of uncanny and alien, like really profoundly alien, and his speech is part of that. Oh, totally. And he's helped by this little thing. It's kind of like, it's this little goblin guy uh, who has a number on his forehead. A lot of the mutant goblin people have numbers on their foreheads. I have no idea why. Uh, But this one reminds me of like uh, Yap from TechNet, you know, Gatecrasher's little lizard buddy. Mother. Yeah, or Salacious Crumb from Star Wars. But so when Sugar Man says, kill them yourself, this thing says, kill them yourself, self. Yeah, exactly. It's legit terrifying. See, this is what happens when you keep someone on an island and just keep demanding over and over and over again to know why they resigned. (laughs) This is what you eventually get. Oh, man. This is like if the prisoner had gotten a a 64th season, it would have just ended up the Seattle core. Oh, God. And we thought Rover was scary. So Mondo does find Ileana, after promising, of course, to come back for Ace. And so our teachers, Colossus and Shadowcat, head on into the core to retrieve Colossus's little sister. And Kitty has been really grumpy about this from the start. It's clear to her that Piotr's judgment is compromised, and it's clear that she's kind of jealous of the extent to which he is just ditching every bit of common sense to go after Ileana. But we re- see them actually really reconnect for a moment here. I don't suppose I could get you to stay here. For better or worse, remember? You realize you have been, and always will be, the one love of my life. <laughs> I assumed as much. So, you up for one last fastball special, intangible style? Never the last, Katya. This is such a Claremont scene. And it's specifically such a Claremont, Cyclops, and Phoenix scene. It really is, yeah. And I think evoking, like, the one big couple of the X-Universe up until this point, that's gotta be deliberate. Like, every other couple in X-Men is gonna be compared to Scott and Jean. Well, and it's a brief taste of sort of the Piotr and Kitty who really could have been. Of how much they do actually mean to each other and care about each other. And that there's more to them than, like, the terrible, 
terrible mentors <laughs> that we've seen them be. Yeah, they're kind of awful people. Oh, they really are, yeah. And that brings us to Generation Next number four. Bye. And Ilyana wakes up on this soft, round pile of stone. She's safe and she's peaceful and she's listening to this beautiful music and she reaches toward this light she sees and her hand reaches out into the horrifying Minds of Moria hellscape out of Mondo's disguised chest and he's whistling to try to keep her calm and safe and also to not digest her because eventually the way his body works, he, uh, he will. He doesn't though. Other things happen. And some of those other things are Sugarman back with the disguised fake Quietus. He's not satisfied with Quietus having apparently shot Chamber because he figures, hey, this dead mutant wouldn't have broken in without backup. And he narrates his thought process with doubled words and that number six goblin echoing him and other goblins clinging to him and behind him. And Paige, as quietest, is just trying to get the hell out of here after killing her teammate. I suppose I'll be calling it a day now. Maybe not just yet, quietest. I'm thinking to myself, here you are, sugar man. Responsible for the entire geothermal energy core for the whole bloppin' country. And you find yourself looking foolish in front of the underlings. And all I've got to show for it? One dead mutant. There's this terrifying feeling of inevitability, like the monster is coming, and no matter what you do, you cannot hide, and the monster is going to find you. Like, this is just a social interaction. This is somebody bluffing and being clearly found out, but it feels like the monster under the bed just snaking its skeletal arm up and up toward the bed. Yeah, everything in those last two issues feels like that. It feels like a nightmare. Oh. And it becomes clear that Sugarman absolutely knows, and he just fucking shoots out his tongue and impales Quietus. He impales Paige and Vincente. And there's a big goddamn fight, including by Chamber, who it turns out was just using his ill-defined psychic powers to fake having been shot. Whatever. You know, let them have this. They're not gonna get much. <laughs> yeah. And this is when Colossus does show up from that intangible fastball special. He is on fire, and he crashes through the roof on top of Sugar Man, and Sugar Man basically explodes. But not as much as he explodes when Chambers shoots his energy blast at Sugar Man and just outright disintegrates the middle part of him. Now, this doesn't exactly kill Sugar Man. What we get coming out of this is is a sugar man who is is clearly dead and a corpse and exploded, but a tiny sugar man remaining who just sort of eats his way through that and the ground to get away. Yeah, it's uh, how does this power work? I don't fucking know, but it scares the crap out of me. Yeah, sugar man's powers are ve- are ill defined and just goddamn terrifying. In this, and and I feel like. You know, he he comes back eventually in the 616, and I am so deeply against that. I think the more you put Sugar Man in the light, the less effective he becomes as a character. Well, and it's like we talked about uh, with Sugar Man in the last episode when we were talking about villains. He's like Mojo in the Longshot miniseries. He never works as well again after an environment where he has absolute 
chaotic power where his whims can kill anyone. <sighs> the team does find Mondo as he promises Ace that he will come back. He's got to deliver Ilyana to his team, but he will come back. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen because as soon as he's promised, Sugarman's tongue darts out of Mondo's chest and shreds him. That specific panel, that moment, has stuck with me like glue for 23 fucking years. Oh god, I know, right? Like, and the great thing about the way these panels are laid out, Bocello has this habit in this series of having really claustrophobic panels, of having things zoomed so far in that you can't exactly tell what's going on. And so you don't know exactly what happens to Mondo. You just know that this tongue snakes out of the center of his chest as he has this look of shock on his face. And then there are just, like, rocks falling away into the edges of the panel. The fact that you don't see it makes it feel so fast and so impossible and so thorough. Well, the panel before that is a close-up on his face, and his eyes are rolling back, and there's blood coming out of his mouth. And I thought that it was something that he'd done to himself, that it happened because he'd been trying to not digest Ilyana, that he'd had to do something that harmed him irrevocably to get her out safely. And then it turned out it was that, and it was so much worse. Oh, God. And at this point, Colossus shows up and just beats the crap out of Sugar Man. He just pulps him into bones and meat and gore. And it's this page of these irregular, sharp, triangular panels as he does so, which is juxtaposed just sadly, horrifyingly even, with Ilyana's narration. I knew one day he'd find me. He's a hero. Not one sugar man or a hundred sugar men could stop him. He's going to bring me home, and I just know I'll finally be safe. For real. Forever. But with Sugar Man dead, it is fucking carnage in the core. The prisoners are in full revolt, and everybody is just brutally slaughtering everything everyone and again with those camera angles those panel angles being so close in all you just see is almost elemental violence i should clarify briefly that when miles says it's carnage in the core he means carnage you know the phenomenon not carnage the symbiote uh right lower lowercase c you know you talked about it being claustrophobic and about those those little triangular panels and one of the things that bachalo just nails that really the whole team nails because the colors and the inks are so much a part of this the depths of the blacks and the ways that the the shading happens and just the 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 murky depth of the colors all of the spaces feel so small and so cramped and they really lend themselves to that nightmare sense of both physical space not quite working as it should but also of there just being no escape and no room to maneuver god totally and that panel structure works even more effectively it just as it closes in more and more on our heroes. Colossus and Shadowcat are trying to lead everybody out. Even Ace, the girl Mondo was protecting, like she's on Chamber's shoulders. But then Chamber, mid-dialogue, mid-word balloon, is just gone. Like he just gets pulled out of the panel. And you, can, you can't even see him. You can just see Ace falling because he's not there anymore. And then skin in the next panel disappears as well, also barely on panel. Like, we can't see what happened. We just, 
everyone's just getting pulled into this violence and consumed by it, and they're just fucking gone. And Shadowcat tries to get Colossus to go back, or, or tries to get him to go on and says, you know, she'll go back for the boys, and Colossus insists that no, no, their responsibility is to get Ileana to Magneto, they'll come back for the others. And Husk, who has Vincente on her back, is just calling out to them, just in, in panic. Don't leave us! Vincente has stopped breathing! He ain't gonna survive another- And they leave. And Paige just looks back at them, as they do, as the panel pulls back farther and farther and farther from her. To his credit, Colossus does go back in, albeit only after Shadowcat refuses to keep phasing them all the way back to Magneto. And since he doesn't want to lose his wife, he goes in himself. And again, we have that juxtaposition of narration and event, that contrast. Ilyana once again is full of hope and faith. I don't know why she's worried. I mean, Peter can do it. He'll find the other people on his team, no matter what. Nothing can stop him. Nothing. No matter what the odds are, I know him. He'll fight and fight and fight until he'll win. He came to rescue me with his friends, and he won't surrender so long as he can save them, too. It's not like he would leave them for any reason. If it meant saving one of them or never seeing me again... I know what he'd do. I mean, like I said, he's a hero. Heroes never give up. Ever. And as she's saying all of this, we see Colossus, we see him get to this gigantic closing metal door, like so ridiculously huge and thick, and there's this panel that I will never forget. For me, this is the panel that's just burned into my brain. It's Husk presumably the only survivor of the team at all of the kids, with her costume torn and all covered in blood, and she's just fighting dozens of mutants in this pit of lowercase c carnage. She's being dragged down, and there's this look of betrayal and anger as a panel goes into a close-up of her face, her face that's mostly covered with these monstrous fingers pulling her back and down, and Colossus's eyes just go wide as he collapses against the door as it closes. And that's the first time... I believe, inside the cord that Pachala pulls back enough to give us a real sense of space. And it's to see Colossus, who previously just physically dominated and filled and overfilled every panel he was in, just diminished as he falls to his knees outside the door. So I gotta ask, Jay, because I've gone back and forth on this. Do you think it's that Colossus couldn't get in? Or that he chose not to keep trying to get in. I don't know, and I don't think he knows, and I don't think we're supposed to know. I mean, what's clear is that, A, he shouldn't have brought the kids to begin with, and Ilyana shouldn't have been the teleporter that they went after to begin with. Like, that he has sacrificed his entire team to this one personal priority is the thing that is excruciatingly clear. And he might have justified it to himself in some other ways, but ultimately that's what happened and none of this was necessary. Yeah. I mean, sure, the X-Men need a time traveler and time travelers are in short supply, but everything everything got fucked up. Like, Ilyana's alive, 
but the entire rest of the next generation of X-Men is dead. All of them. I can't believe this book had the guts to do that. I mean, I think there's a degree of bravery that comes with knowing that you're in a four-issue miniseries in an alternate universe that's going to get reset at the end of that, at which point these kids go back to being in an ongoing. But yeah, God, this series is brutal, and it it sells the stakes of this world in ways that I think no other really does. Yeah, I mean, we see other characters die, certainly, over the course of the other series, but we don't see a team of comparative innocence get utterly wiped out like this. We don't see just the overwhelming despair of the world just annihilate an entire group of characters we care about. Well, and when we see other characters die, we see them, to an extent, dying nobly for a cause or dying in fights that 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 have some purpose. The thing about this team is that they were they were wiped out unnecessarily. They were wiped out because the adult who was supposed to be responsible for training them failed in his responsibilities in in one way after another. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Colossus is He's not a good person in this world, but he is absolutely a tragic person because he is a broken person. Oh yeah, he is 100% like this this series in general. We've talked about Madeline Pryor's arc as fundamentally being a Greek tragedy and I would argue that Colossus is in this series is as well. So there you have it. Generation next. One of the prettiest series in the entire Age of Apocalypse, and certainly the fucking darkest. Now, we'll see some of these characters back in the 616. Vincente will show up briefly as a Gen X villain. The Sugar Man, like you mentioned, Jay, will become a villain for ages and ages in the 616, albeit never a very interesting one. We do see a little bit more about this version of Paige in the Age of Apocalypse mini, and honestly, I think the way she turns out really cheapens the end of this story. But, you know, that happens. Kitty, or at least a version of Kitty who survives to Battleworld, will be back years and years later in the Star-Lord and Kitty Pride miniseries from Secret Wars. Which is goddamn delightful. It's basically a romantic comedy starring goofball Star-Lord and, like, the meanest, most evil version of Kitty, and I love it. Also, her dresses are just super cool. They really are. So... We should focus on a topic for this episode, like we do with every Age of Apocalypse episode. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about something that's not there. So every every previous episode, we've talked about something that's central in the Age of Apocalypse. You know, villains, heroes, how it interacts with the definition of X-Men. And here, I want to talk about the next generation of mutants. Now, this is something that, I as, as I mentioned, is, is largely and pretty much always absent from the Age of Apocalypse, which is interesting to me because it's such a fundamental part of the 616 and such a fundamental part of the X-Men's mission and purpose and the shape of the X-Line. We've got the Gen X kids, but as you mentioned, they're all dead by the end of this miniseries. And we've already, the, the only other young mutants we've seen or will have seen are the handful of kids who would have been the New Mutants who were killed um, back when when Holocaust them nemesis attacked Wendigore. Yeah, I mean, we do have 
some of the previous New Mutants characters elsewhere, like, you know, Cannonball is in the Elite Mutant Force, and Wolfsbane is just stuck in wolf form in a beast's labs and stuff like that. We see Karma in Heaven, but they're not really... None of them ever really got the chance to be part of Xavier's dream slash Magneto's rebellion. What interests me, too, is that we never see younger mutants. We do, it's not just that we don't see them in the Resistance. We don't see them in the Empire, either. We don't see them on Apocalypse's side, which seems weird to me. This seems like something that specifically Apocalypse would be very invested in cultivating. But the only place we see where mutants come from on the bad guy side is, is you know, Sinister's clone tubes. Yeah, I mean, you figure North America's mutant-dominated, and there's this enormous, powerful empire, so there have got to be young mutants. Like, I assume that they're mostly living lives of wealth and luxury if their parents have submitted to Apocalypse and are, you know, considered worthy enough, but they're never on panel. I'd actually assume their lives still kind of suck, given the whole survival of the fittest doctrine. Like, I assume there's a lot of fighting to the death. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably true. That's just how grade school works. It's like the opposite of Montessori education. It's murder-zori education. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we don't see most parts of mutant society, but the lack of younger mutants is so striking to me that it seems bizarre that it's never commented on. Well, I think that's especially glaring because the last big time we saw Apocalypse, admittedly far in the future of a different timeline— like, he was hanging out with young asshole Strife basically the whole time. He was raising Strife as a body for himself. And so, I guess that works, though, because in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, where we saw that, Apocalypse was old and he was dying, and the whole survival of the fittest thing maybe was falling by the wayside because he was raising this kid to take over the body of. And here, he's at the height of his power, the height of his strength. He's not even worried about that. He's still got that pure survival of the fittest or maybe just mutants rule everything, doctrine. Yeah, I wonder if this is a, a kill all the cubs so that none of them grow up and take over state of affairs. That doesn't seem sustainable. But then again, basically nothing about the Age of Apocalypse seems sustainable. Yeah, that's the thing. Apocalypse's general philosophies and, and, and theory of government just doesn't work. I mean, it works for a few years while he's in charge, but then there are nuclear warheads in the Emkron Crystal, and uh, a number of other problems that would have ended things also if those things hadn't first. So, like, America 2020. Eh, womp womp. So, yeah, these are the young mutants we get, really only on Magneto's side, either dead or alive. If this had been a longer event or a bigger event, I think that could have been a cool thing to look at. Like, I'd love to see the Age of Apocalypse equivalent of maybe the Hellions or something, but they're just absent. Oh, man, that would be creepy, the bad guy kid team. Oh, seriously. Like, Factor X, but it would have empaths, so it would be worse. Uh, whether child or adult, though, X-Men fans have questions. Devin Tui asks via email, you occasionally bring up that the Ilyana who returned was not really the Ilyana who died in Inferno. Can you explain what's going on there? Oh boy. Okay, so, initially the Ilyana that came back around X Infernus in the, I guess, mid-2000s. And we should qualify this is in the 616, not Age of Apocalypse. Age of uh, Apocalypse right. is irrelevant in this question. Yes, so initially that Ilyana wasn't the Ilyana we knew. 
Because after seeing Ileana in the House of M alternate reality, the Demon Lord Velasco wanted her back, but all he could do was bring back what was left of her in Limbo, which was basically a version of the Dark Child of Ileana's demon side, like the body of that, and Ileana's memories. But he couldn't find Ileana's soul. It was just gone. So... After about a year of comics and some very, very complicated shenanigans involving Bloodstones and Pixie and Legion, this version of Ilyana was in fact united with Ilyana's missing soul. So at that point, we had Ilyana, an Ilyana who was made of the original Ilyana's disembodied memories, a limbo-constructed physical form, and a portion of the actual Ilyana's soul that had been stuck in a Bloodstone since the original Magic uh, miniseries. X-Men! X-Men. So point is, right now she's effectively the same Ilyana because all of the components that make up an Ilyana Rasputin have been assembled, but when she first came back, she was essentially just a simulacrum. Like, the soul, the literal soul of Ilyana, her essence, wasn't really there. So maybe it's a technicality, maybe we could just call that version straight up Ilyana because she ended up that way and because part of her was there, but for me, I think it's an important distinction, if for no other reason than then that it illustrates how ridiculously convoluted X-Men continuity can be. I definitely recall Warlock referring to her as Ilyana 2.0. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Well done, Warlock. Corey asks via email, at what point is the subtext text? And at what point is it just queerbaiting? Oh boy, is that a question. So, oh man, speaking of Ileana Rasputin, I think something, I, I think this, this speaks to a point of differentiation that's really important to me, and one that tends to get lost a lot. Um, so, subtext is generally what would be on the surface but for higher up rejection of the concept. It's saying, okay, we can't say these things, we can't have these things be official, but we're putting as much of them in as possible because even if we can't offer an explicit reflection, even if we can't point to it and say, that's you, we can put in enough of a mirror that pe the people who we're, we're writing to will, will recognize themselves. And... I mean, I can say as as a writer who's been in that position with licensed projects, like, that's not baiting. That's usually a bunch of queer people doing the best they can with what they're allowed to work with. So with, with queer baiting, I guess that's a concept that I sort of see as a much, much more cynical approach, as saying we're going to tease this thing, we're going to play with this without ever intending to include it, even if we had the ability or the chance. And the tough thing is that with most, most for instance, Marvel comics, you're never going to know where that's coming from. You're never going to, you're never going to really know for sure if something is almost queer, whether it's almost queer because someone said, well, no, th this is our style guide, or, well, no, that, you know, won't sell an X or Y or Z market, or because a writer went, you know, decided it would be, it would be fun to, to play on that edge. I, yeah, so, so there isn't a really good single answer to this. Um, and also it's something that it's, that, that, that writers are generally contractually banned from discussing publicly. <laughs> 
So I guess, um, I mean, I would just be careful with, with the term queer baiting. I would, I would look for subtext and I would bear in mind too, that people don't have to intend things as subtext or as queerness for the queerness to be present and valid and real and for other folks in the future to pull it to the surface and make it explicit. See figure one, Iceman. Yeah, so I see subtext in a lot of ways, and even stuff that to some extent may be intended more cynically as laying the groundwork for that. For me, that's that's leaving those handholds, those fingerholds and toeholds, that even if they're not an elevator are going to help someone else get to the point that I couldn't quite reach you know, in the year that I did the thing. Well said. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, oh, today we are going with supervillain thanks, and um, because apparently we've decided that I'm just not sleeping ever again, the mic goes to Sugarman and number six. You never cease to amaze me, Mike Saver. Caught an intruder, you did? Who did you screw it? Apocalypse says the strongest survive, yes? I think you're strong, or you wouldn't be here. You're here, be here. But if you're too tired to execute the spy, then the very loyal Stephen Bennett Martin is ready, yes? Shouldn't be a problem to kill like you love to do. Love to do, love you too, above you too, yeah. Cause if not, then the sugar man can show you what happens. Show you how it's done. Fun run. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and New Fairfield, Connecticut, the latter in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's swashbuckling and treachery on the high seas. On the pages of Excalibur. As distinct from Excalibur. It works better spelled out. I realized recently that everything I know about counting down for any kind of recording comes from Wayne's World. Oh, that's true. The thing where you don't say two or one. Of course, you didn't say ten through three, but still, the point stands. No, but but still, I, I, yeah...